The 2020 Network is brought to you by Interact. It seems like financial crime is a news headline every day. Everyone is looking for ways to keep their money safe, but what are some simple tips for businesses and Canadians to protect themselves? Interact is offering tips at interact.ca slash fraud prevention. Hi, everybody. It is Friday, November 23rd. In the studio today, I've got Marianne Carter of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group and Marco Vigliotti. Is that how I pronounce it? The G is actually silent, but uh, (laughs) just make it more complicated. Vigliotti. Yes. Oh, wow. That's cool. Of iPolitics. Yes. Senior editor of iPolitics. That was a a recent switch. Yes. Um, How's it going? Very good. Um, We have a really great team there. And it's been, you know, it's so exciting just to be back in journalism and breaking stories and covering them. And like I said, we have a really good team, so super exciting. And the best offices too. Yes, I, I like the office. Yeah, it's 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 a very it's it's like the quintessential journalism office. It is. And that's yeah. just a, such a, that's awesome. The first Exposed first thing, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, it's really good. Um, Marianne, how are you? I'm very well, Sarah. Thank you. How are you? you look lovely. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it's been a busy week for everybody. I think TGIF. Yeah, TGIF. We are feeling that. Um, a lot of news, so we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, the Liberal government unveiled um, uh, its much-anticipated fall economic update on Wednesday evening. Yes, it was Wednesday evening, sort of um, afternoon. There's been a, a lot of talk since on all sides of the political spectrum. But um, some key takeaways here, tax competitiveness. Well, there was hype around this going into it, given where the U.S. now stands. Um, we had Murad uh, Hamadi from the logic on last week. And he was saying that, um, the Trump tax cuts turned what had been on average an eight point advantage to a seven point deficit. So we went from being, and he said this far, far better than them to far worse overnight. So under the direction of finance minister, Bill Morneau, the government is pledging 16 billion in tax breaks for corporate Canada. So it was, it really was directed at, at this, uh, demographic. Um, so, Marco, can you lay out what these tax breaks are um, and, and, yeah, sort of the, the what will they do? What's going to be the impact? Yeah, so the government has some numbers suggesting that the the impact of these tax changes will contribute, to, will, will sharply uh, cut the overall uh, tax rate for new business investment in Canada. I think they're saying it will, it will now be the lowest among G7 countries, including the United States. But basically what they're doing is uh, allowing uh, businesses to write off a larger share of their expenses, especially towards new, uh, towards new purchases of equipment and machinery and clean energy technology. So, I, like you mentioned, I don't think this is something that will really set on the hearts on fire of most Canadians because <laughs> okay. it's we're talking about really counting rules and you know how it allowed. For example, one of the the, the biggest components of this is that um, the, t- the the time frame where you can write off these investments um, has been greatly you know expediated as opposed to over the lifetime life uh, lifetime of these investments you can now start writing them off on your you know your fir- most of most of on your first tax bill which the idea is that that will I- increase business investment which has always been something that is always of concern when it comes to Canada it seems that uh, Canadian businesses don't seem to be uh, investing a lot of money into new in, in, and there seems to be a bit of a pr- productivity gap with the United States. It seems to be an mm. obsession of policymakers, but yeah. basically that is really the the crux of what they're allowing businesses to do. It seems a bit esoteric. It seems like it might necessarily translate for most Canadians, but I would argue that's not really the target audience here. Right, and Marianne, we were talking about this. So, is the what kind of um, what kind of businesses is it going to be? I, I think the focus is um, really export 
um, sensitive industry, so we're talking a lot of manufacturing for firms. Um, I, I like this is not something that the financial services uh, industry is really going to care about too much, unless they're making, you know, billion dollar, multi million dollar purchases in new equipment and machinery, or you know, um, it, it, the, the the piece around the clean energy technology though is something that will really apply across the economy. But yeah, I think the focus is on industries that would face a product, would face a competitive um, a gap compared to the United States, right? Because of how aggressive those tax cuts were. Yeah. So all of this because there is this fear that companies are, are venturing south to get a better deal. Do we know that that's happening, or 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 you know, is that just sort of again something that policymakers sort of like to to talk about? There's the broader context, right, of the NAFTA, the, the new NAFTA negotiation, and also we can't forget the the steel and aluminum tariffs, right? It wasn't just the U.S. Uh, that um, enforced this on Canada, but Canada retaliated. So um, the cost of doing business for some of these industries is significantly higher. Um, you know, they've had to lay off workers and, and that sort of thing. So you did see a chunk of money delivered in this. Um, in my humble view, this is um, a, a mini budget that was speaking to the business community. You've seen a lot of the narrative over the last number of months changing to a competitiveness theme. Like when you look at uh, the climate change discussion, we're talking about a, a price on pollution now and, and just this very like business uh, yeah. jargon. And um <clears throat> This can be supported by, you know, seeing third parties like the Canadian Chamber and the uh, Canadian Federation for Independent Business were um, endorsing some of the the um, uh, provisions in in the economic statement uh, because, you know, we can't forget about the broader political climate of the relationship between the United States, but also things like the oil industry, which, you know, some critics are looking at, well, there was no mention of that. Um, But then the prime minister was in Calgary yesterday giving a keynote at the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, a meeting with energy leaders. So there's like, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, we're 11 months out from the federal election. And they're trying to check a number of boxes and and save some of those um, other items for the larger federal budget in the new year, which will be their last budget before the election, uh, such as um, – there was uh, supposed to be something or there was, you know, rumors there may be something on like skills and trades, you know, and, and I, I would suspect we might see that more in, in the new year. Um, but yeah, so this, in my, in my view, this was really, really speaking to the business yes. community and, and continuing to push those like innovative like we're going to stimulate yeah. the economy right. through investing in the strategic innovation fund, and because usually, yeah. you know, at this point, we are, you know, our economy is doing really well. Our unemployment rate is low. You would think most of the time, and, and history has shown, you know, we pull back at the at these times. But it's kind of a risky, bold, wily play. Um, uh, kind of like it. I kind of like that that wiliness. It's sort of an, it's sort of non-Canadian, but I don't know. Well, and Canadian. sorry if I can just want add one more thing after my very long-winded answer. Yeah. But um, you've seen a lot more on regulatory reform. You know, like uh, this has always been an issue. Governments always grapple with this, and but there was a great. Um, 
uh, it, was, it was very uh, actively mentioned throughout. Like we're going to develop these sandboxes to improve regulatory uh, measures and a variety of industries. And like what that looks like is sort of yet to be seen. But that's also speaking to the broader um, business community, but also that moderate voter who's like wants red tape reduced. Yes. Um, yes. So we'll, I think we'll see more of that as we thread into the the next federal budget in the coming months. Um. Why not, Marco, just implement more widespread tax breaks, um, you know, to, to, to compete with the U.S.? Like, just do basically what they did. Um, it, it's funny, though, because, you know, we're talking about, uh, or at least the conservatives were talking about how they went for, the liberals went for this fall economic statement, didn't really indicate how they're going to, you know, pull us out from the red um, and uh, how we're going to cut this deficit. And the argument that... Um, Bill Marno made for why he didn't match those U.S. tax cuts is that it would completely obliterate um, the, the, de- the deficit replacement plans that the Liberals have, and it would completely unbalance what our what our uh, what what, what the, the way that they're measuring uh, our debt load, which is ratio, debt ratio to GDP. Right. So that's that's an interesting take. Um, it is. It, it does seem like the Liberals it, it are in one camp where they're saying we really like it, from the messaging that we're getting from them, it just doesn't seem to be. A priority to pay down the debt deficit this time, or to return us to the black. It just doesn't seem something that they feel is perhaps politically uh, opportunistic. It doesn't seem like they feel like they will win a lot of goodwill from from voters. Mm-hmm. So, what's the necessity for them to really advance any of these changes? But at the same time, I, I think the argument is it's not prudent to go forward uh, with you know m- matching tax cuts that we see in the United States, which I think are total something like one point five trillion dollars. Especially when you know the argument from liberals would also be. We have a relatively strong competitive balance compared to the United States. These tax, tax cuts, you know, change that scale a bit, but we don't need to necessarily resort to these same drastic measures. But of course, you know that the, uh, that will uh, that'll be up to, that will remain to see uh, if that's actually uh, how things play out. Yeah. Do you think that the the liberals will ever? come out with a strong statement of, okay, we're, we're balancing the books. Like that's our, that, or that's not really their play, you know, but we do have one more budget. We have another budget um, to come before the election. Um, and so what, from a political strategy standpoint, like what was this one and, and, and mini budget, let's say, and, and what will be the next play for them in the next budget? This is going to, the next budget will be sprinkle here, sprinkle there, make all our, you know, potential voters happy because, you know, like we've both said, it's, it's before the next federal election and you're trying to check a lot of those boxes, especially in different regions of the country. Um, I just want to make the point, though, too, having worked in the business community, this notion of balancing the budget, it's its a real political um, uh, communique. Like, it, it works, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's stimulating the economy. Like, balancing the budget, there, there are different ways. And this isn't a partisan perspective, to make that clear. Um, like, business communities have come out and said, like, you know, we can invest and you can go in the red. It's like, it's like if you think of it as a credit card, right? You put, you go in the red for a bit and then you pay your bill. It's like, it's, it's about how you manage that, right? So this concept of constantly balancing the budget doesn't mean we're growing the economy. And this isn't a liberal perspective. This is like... Actually, looking at data and how, but it's it's how you do it and how you manage the spending. Yes, and this is why it works so well in the political realm in this like balancing the budget versus not because it resonates with you know 
Canadians and who are cards. prudent <laughs> about, you know, going into a black hole. And to Marco's point, it's like, we're, you know, comparatively, if you look at Canada um, to the United <laughs> States or in different jurisdictions, um, historically, we've been pretty good. And I think you could take the financial crisis 2008 as a perfect example of how we managed to come out on, um, I would say on top, but in a fairly good position with all things considered. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I think that um, in the, the run-up to the 2015 election, when the Liberals broke uh, uh, broke ranks with all the other uh, major parties and saying that we're actually going to run a deficit, yeah. uh, the, 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 the caveat was, we'll return to the black by the next election. I think once they got in power, I, I think it became pretty obvious that voters weren't going to punish them. Right. For this, That's right. Or at least their their core constituencies. So it's so it, it just completely removed it's not an advantage, yeah. But I do think that and to Marianne's point, that it they were signaling that in this mini budget that um, in terms of how they kind of um played uh towards the uh, oil and gas industry, the fact that you know they made those changes and they offered, you know, uh, for the business community so, uh, these aggressive uh, tax write-offs, I think it signals that, that they've flagged that as a far more pressing political concern, how you know, pricing pollution um, is going to affect you know, your, uh, the bottom lines of ordinary Canadians, how it's going to help, how it may potentially hamper business investment. So for them, that's something that I think this mini-budget signals that they're far more concerned with any political fallout from the carbon tax, uh, sorry, the price on pollution, as opposed to what our deficit is at, at the end of the day. Right. One very interesting component of this package um, was a nearly $600 million boost over five years to Canada's media sector. So they're kind of bailing out, if you will, an industry that's been rattled by the digital shift, um, as we all know. And essentially what it sounds like, money will be directed at a tax credit for, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, tax credit for media organizations to more easily handle operational uh, costs, staffing, production, all that kind of stuff, uh, tax breaks for consumers of digital news outlets, um, and applying like charitable status to nonprofit news organizations um, with the goal there of being that they can accept donations and then apply like issue tax re- receipts or whatever to those donors. Um, so, so really helping like local uh, news organizations, I would consider that as. I, I, I think um, w- with that piece, they were trying to um, encourage and um, offer incentives for organizations that are incorporated as a nonprofit, which I believe La Press is doing in Quebec. So I think it's more so here's another opportunity for uh, media, media organizations to organize themselves. Right. Outside of the traditional uh, format that we see where, you know, you, you're structured as a for-profit company. Right. Okay. So the the, the key point um, that I think is causing uh, maybe the most confusion or controversy is who's eligible. So the government said it will be setting up panels to determine this. Um, and, and that's, you know, what the, the conservatives are hanging on to, right? Like it's going to get really subjective or the, the usual suspects going to come out and just start funding the kind of news that they want to see. Um, let's not forget, this was a call though from a variety of media organizations who said like, we need help. Um, it's an industry that needs help. And, um, you know, you were making a good point uh, that, that there's always something in an economic update, right? That that people want to latch on to, and this is kind of this was kind of it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because it sends a 
significant, you know, injection of funding into our struggling Canadian news industry. But, you know, something we've been talking about at Ernstcliffe and I've heard it in, you know, different circles in Ottawa about how it also sends a really strong message during an era of fake news. And to go back to that Canada-US dynamic, um, I think it, it's it's something I think needs to be flushed out a bit more. But, uh, you know, going back to the basics of, you know, helping you know the average Canadian understand the value of having a legitimate news source and 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 seeing that I think it it, it does send a really particularly interesting signal. Um, but it did shock and surprise many. I think it was like, yeah. oh, okay, oh, no. yeah. <laughs> but and then when I think of it in the context of fake news era. And if you, you know, I think the research says that most Canadians consume their news through Facebook now. Um, and, you know, we're not, not as many people have paper subscriptions and all that sort of thing. Um, it's like, oh, maybe this is also part of a broader educational campaign around legitimacy of news sources and balancing off, you know, what we're seeing uh, south of the border. Um yeah. Fact versus opinion, yes, that sort of thing. So the conservative stick issue with this, um, it'll no doubt you know occupy a lot of the conversation in QP and other scrums. Like Michelle Rempel tweeted yesterday, you know what? Journalists are the victims of the Trudeau-sponsored content fund. They're all going to have to work extra hard to prove their ob- objectivity in an era where everyone is a content creator. R.I.P. Free speech. Listen, money doesn't grow from the ground. <laughs> it's coming from somewhere. And to say that journalists can't do their work objectively um, or with integrity because of where the money's coming from, I think is a bit of a slap in the face. I mean, look at the CBC. Um, but it does raise interesting issues. And I think it was Andrew Coyne on the National last night was saying, like, he made a compelling argument. And I think actually, I agree with this a lot is that um, at a time when the current players involved in media um, need to think innovatively, and um, there needs to be new players at the table, this might, you know, I think he said, uncle government is bailing them out and going to put everyone to sleep again. Um, so, you know, at a time when we need to be like concerned and, and on the edges of our seats and, and making um, changes and what whatnot, it's just going to be like, okay, well, we got money. Let's forget about it. Um, I don't know. What's your take? Um, I think that, uh, you know, follow, following this and the, the, the responses that you've heard from, you know, the conservatives and, and others, uh, commentators, I think it's interesting from my background as someone who started in community news. And one thing that, you know, used to always strike me was when we, you know, I flipped through the paper, I would notice that on the, you know, the page where, you know, our masthead was printed, there'd always be this little section noting how um, they were accessing the Canada Media Fund to the periodical fund, excuse me, to cover some of the costs. I thought that was interesting. And for most of the papers that I worked for before going into, um, uh, I, I guess, the, 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 the first one I went to that didn't take advantage of this fund was in Regina when I was working for a daily newspaper there. Um, it, was just, it just seemed really interesting that the government was contributing funding. And I never heard one you know, peep of disapproval from any other party in government but the periodical fund is something that a lot of smaller players take advantage for, uh, take advantage of. It seems like it's something that is entirely 
nece- necessary if you want to if you want to produce you know print products or you want to pr- cover news in really small communities where they don't have a big subscriber base. So for me, I think it's interesting to hear a lot of uh, you know ga- gasping at you know what the government's doing, where they already are directly contributing to funding news in Canada. That's right, and not even you know you know aside from CBC, you know these a lot a lot of small newspapers I think would be up in arms if the government was talking about cutting periodical fund. And that was something that was mentioned by a lot of their bigger organizations was, well, you know, we can't qualify to access these funds. So perhaps, you know, that might be an opportunity to support us. The fact that they're going to the route of uh, tax incentives, the fact that they're allowing um, in, uh, consumers to write off these expenses for subscribing to digital news. It, it's an interesting approach for them. I think that um, they also seem seemingly wanted, wanted to completely sidestep any conversation about influencing uh, news or, news organizations by p- p- uh, pushing that conversation to media and journalists saying, okay, you guys are going to be yeah, responsible you, for setting your own rules. <laughs> is it is it because of the panel that they're setting up, is it made up of journalists? Is that what the... They said um, the news, media, and journalism community. Okay. So we still right. don't really know what that means, right. and they're going to roll that out. I but. mean, that, that's going to be what, what, what gets interesting, I think. I mean... Um, what we're this isn't a long term solution, obviously. Like there still needs to be work done on the business model of journalism, Absolutely. you know, and that 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 doesn't excuse it. So, but what worries me, and I know this is going to happen, is like for the next year we're going to hear oh, okay, we're gonna, or whenever this gets into is implemented, you know, um, we're going to hear from different parties and 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 bases that another article written in support of the liberals and it's going to play into that narrative the liberal media that already is out there that's influenced by the u.s and so i don't like that but um it's a struggling industry and uh it needed some support um and this is one way of doing it yeah yeah for sure and it's just it's i think what sort of they have to look at and i know they've been looking at this um, for a few years now is like how do you innovate and how do you like there's disruption happening um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing um, but it's you know when people are starting to lose jobs and you know balancing between fact and opinion and but how do you become a significant player and be relevant yeah. in a climate um, where people would rather go on Facebook and get their news from different outlets that may not have been the traditional go-to like we've seen with you know not to throw names out but just like buzzfeed and vox and some of those like those didn't those weren't prevalent 20 years ago right and so it's not just about technology it's about how people are consuming their news who who is viewed as an expert who can deliver the news who's a freelancer um and that's something i think the industry needs to sort of in Canada, yeah. talk about more in a, a nuanced fashion, and I know they have been. I don't. I don't say that critically, but you know, there have been certain news um, outlets that have launched apps and that sort of thing, and they haven't been successful. Like they're trying to stay on the pulse, and it, I don't know if there's like necessarily a sweet spot. I know, um, but. There, there are ways, but then you're seeing, you know, other, like you're seeing something like the logic pop yeah, up, right. which is, you know, there's a, a cost attack. Like, so it, I, I really do think it's, it's, it's a matter of where the, the consumer's places value and, and who your target audience is. Exactly. And I mean, deciding, so this panel conceivably is going to have to decide where to put the money and then you have to determine, okay, so what's a news outlet and what's a news. So this is going to 
I imagine, strike up a full new conversation about what we consider to be the media and what we consider to be um, authoritative um, news deliverers. Um, Okay, so let's move on. Interesting financial economic (laughs) update talk, but enough of that. Um, St. Michael's College School, an all-boys private school in Toronto, has come under fire recently, and it seems to be getting worse. On Monday, six teens were charged with sexual assault in connection with one incident against a student. Um, The video that's been circulating shows members of a sports team uh, pinning down a student and assaulting him with a broom handle. Um, St. Michael's principal and, and board president resigned in, in wake of the, the criminal investigation. Um, Marianne, what is what was your first take when when reading about this? I know you had done some research previously about sort of the, the hyper masculinity within sports teams and um, was it was it new was it shocking to you to find out this was an all boys sports team locker room situation? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, this is um, I don't want to say it's common, but it's not the first time this has happened in Canada. And I, I mean, obviously, I was like shocked to hear it and, and obviously very um, disturbed by it. I think what I'm most disturbed about, though, is sort of the. Um, nature of how this is viewed in the broader context of like um, how an administration uh, dealt with mm, it. That's right. And well, look, explain that. So they look, it, look. I I wasn't there, and I just I'm yeah. going through what I've been, you know, what's been reported on. But um, as I understand it, um, there a week had gone by, and uh, the administration had called the police uh, to seek advice on to handle this. Um, as someone who's a background in sexual assault law, um, it, it's very disturbing to to not for the to know that the administration didn't recognize that this is a, a, a criminal um, uh, a criminal issue, and uh, that the fact that uh, an assault took place uh, is not just bullying. It, it like regardless of these students being minors, the criminal code exists, and um, there is a whole section on sexual assault law and that's why ultimately the police had to charge these students um, because there was video evidence that surfaced um, and and obviously there had been um, a number of calls of act to action from the police force uh, for anyone who had possession of the video or was circulating the video to delete it immediately because they're in possession of child pornography. Uh, this is extremely serious. Um, it's also highly damaging um, for the victim and, and, and for, you know, the other students um, as well. But uh, what is most concerning to me is that um, it wasn't viewed as necessarily this criminal act and abusive. It was more, but but frankly, the problem lies is in, in you know it's in an all boys context. And one thing I keep raising is like, what if this had been a girl? Right. Would this have been dealt with differently? I don't know. Um, I, I, I a part of me feels like it would have because I think it would. Like I've not seen anything saying like um, about gang rape. 
but that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> that's but exactly I, what it was. And just and in the context of, of of minor sports, there's been lots of incidents. It's almost like a hazing. Oh, there's it's a bit, it's a combination yeah. of a lot of different cultural dynamics, right? It's all yeah. boys. It's a sports team, which is mm-hmm. hyper masculine environment. Um, it's it's the social media aspect. It's uh, it, it's all of it. And um, I mean, I know a lot of, of of guys that have been on sports teams uh, in high school. Um, not I went to a public school and it wasn't private school, but but regardless. Um, and, and the stuff that goes on in there, <laughs> we hear of locker room chat. Like it, it really is kind of disturbing. And it, I can only imagine if you're a, a student, um, a boy who doesn't want to participate in that kind of behavior, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, whatever it is, that how difficult that would be and how you would become an automatic target for Definitely. whatever. Did you ever, I don't know, did you go to a private school, Marco? I went to a public school and I was on a few sports teams and I, I, I don't think, like, I, I couldn't even imagine not that, that ever occurring um, I, I think that there is a lot of, you know, gray areas around, you know, what constitutes hazing and what constitutes, you know, bullying and what constitutes, you know, cr- you know uh, crime. But I just think that this is just so beyond the pale that I, I don't quite understand how this, how, you know, these young kids, I guess, thought that this was somehow permissible, how this was something that was totally in line with, you know, the the the, the dynamic of whatever t- team or locker room that you're in. It just seems so... Bizarre. <laughs> well, and that's what Marianne and I were talking about earlier is, um, you know, that, that there seems to be a lack of understanding of like just common human decency yeah. and, and maybe that that needs to be put on the priority list mm-hmm. for right out of the gate, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, from some of the research I did like a few years ago, I looked at, you know, some of the issues that have happened in minor league sports and sporting culture in Canada. And, and unfortunately, there's very limited research was lodged in the U.S. But um, the clear connections is here is like in sport, power, often, you know, you can use hockey as a perfect example. Any dominated, like physically dominated, power is eroticized. Hmm. And, and it becomes this unprivileged group, right, where you're on a team. And so it's almost... Um, you know, creates in a, a well-respected all-boys private school that's connected to sport. You're seeing the eroticization of power and control, um, and not being viewed uh, in these very disturbing and criminal acts. Um, and I think that's part of the issue. And and these things are very systemic, right? Like, um, it. it in my perspective, tone comes from the top, and a lot of education has happened. And we have seen. Um, uh, previously, there's been lots of um, work done by Laura Robinson, who was a freelance journalist covering this for many years in Canada, um, and you know, coaches uh, abusing. And right. so, it's it's not new, but it it's it's very embedded of the in the culture of of sport male sport. Male sport. Um, and I mean. I am not a man and I'm not, but like I did play competitive sports growing up and it's very different. And I'm not saying it happens in every sporting league, but it's, it's, it can be prevalent. We've seen it in minor hockey. We've seen it in various um, sporting leagues of this, like almost like homo roterization of, 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 
blatantly abused. A bit abused, absolutely. But it's, it's in this context or almost like a safe space. Yeah, you yeah. want to say it? Like, right. Yeah, it's okay here because, you know, <laughs> this is what happens here. It's the normal. But we were talking about it earlier, like just Marco and I briefly, like you look at like the military or police force are these very male-dominated institutions that have had long-standing problems. And that's not to paint everyone the same brush and say, no. but it just, it, it tends to be this like macho, masculine, like, industries or, or sporting teams that this this culture festers. And it's interesting to me when I was in high school, I grew up in Ottawa and there was a private school um, that came under fire for similar um, situations that unfolded with uh, with a couple students uh, involving male students. And um, and there was a sort of a concerted effort to um, to sh- like hush hush. We don't want to make big news out of the- even out of the parents. And so there is, um, it's like the competitive juices and the, and the, um, you know, all that, that, that comes from their parents too. Like, well, we'll, it's okay. We'll just, we'll we'll hush that away and we'll get on with it. Right. Because there's this, um, perception thing. And I think it's a competitive thing and I think it's a privilege thing, but yeah, lots to unpack from a, I I think it's, it's just so interesting in these cases, how, the how how it seemingly you know um, these group of, of kids that if you know I'm sure uh, if, I think that if you pull them aside and you ask them for you know their individual takes on what is gang rape you know you would see the responses that you would expect but it's just somehow normalized based on this you know need to fit in with this very with this you know selective group yeah. and you know growing up and attending a public school the sports teams were never seen as like they weren't they weren't seen the same way that you see in american television where you know being on the football team you know affords you a certain degree of popularity and privilege within the campus just wasn't the way it it, it went forward heck the president of the united states used the term locker room talk Mm -hmm. talking about the abuse of women like i don't know there's this culture yeah sarah i think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that um there's been enough since this was reported and it came out in the media i think um there was six there's six separate incidents that have come up since and they could or could not be related um the police won't divulge that information but clearly this is like opened a door of well there's actually like a really bigger issue here of of something that's going on within the school it's also you know a brand reputation issue it's a it's a good school like there's all these sort of intricate parts but it's evident that this is in a standalone situation right 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 also raises into question like the, the the bystander right the role of the bystander like you know mm-hmm. and the pressure that that there is there and and when do you call out and and um you know all of that. So anyway, that's all we have for today. I'm sorry. We ended on a bit of a depressing note, but um, good conversation. Be kind to each other. Be kind, to, be kind to each other. Have a really great weekend. Um, thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Marco. Can I have your Twitter handles, please? I'm uh, at Marianne underscore Carter. I'm similar. I'm at Marco at Marco underscore Filiati. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll see you here next time. The 2020 Network is brought to you by Interac. The other day, I received a phishing link, and it turns out I'm not the only one. According to Interac, almost a quarter of Canadians have clicked on a phishing link. If you, like me, are interested in learning more about how you can protect yourself against fraud, visit interact.ca slash fraud prevention. <laughs>